I want to welcome everybody to uh, Plum Creek Chapel, and um, this is going to be part 33 of our What Lies Ahead series, and we started last week taking a look at Revelation 4 and 5 as the lead-up to the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, and before we get into that, just want to mention a couple of quick announcements. Uh, don't forget uh, that if you do not have the book that corresponds to some of the stuff that we're talking about, you can pick one of those up from uh, the back table. And then also we kicked off a new series this past Wednesday night uh, called How to Read and Understand the Bible. And last Wednesday we talked about why you believe what you believe and, and why it's important to have a foundational standard for truth and kind of preparing the way for what we're going to be talking about in the weeks to come as we uh, take a look at the Bible and look at in detail how to study it, what the different genres are and what the difference between certain portions of Scripture and how to look at the context and observation and those types of things. So uh, that first session is already up uh, at the uh, Not By Works website and the Plum Creek Chapel website. Uh, and the uh, other thing I want to mention is that, of course, this week I'll be gone. I mentioned that last Wednesday. So we will not have our midweek service this Wednesday. And those of you that typically live stream, uh, just make a note of that. But we will uh, return once again on the 13th. So Wednesday, October 13th, will be our next session in this uh, series uh, here. So um, as we left off last time, we've been kind of talking about that seven-year period that will occur right before the second coming of our Lord to establish His kingdom, a kingdom of peace and righteousness and justice, a kingdom where He rules with a rod of iron, a kingdom that will fulfill all of Old Testament prophecy that was leading up to this climactic moment when Christ comes back, this time as a victorious warrior, to take the throne, not as a suffering servant who would pay for the sins of the world with his own blood, but that, who would take the throne as promised him uh, throughout uh, the Old Testament. Now, we've spent quite a bit of time, as you can tell, on the tribulation, and in one respect it might seem disproportionate since it's only seven years of an end times uh, plan that involves, of course, all of eternity ultimately, but we know there's a thousand year earthly reign of Christ on the old earth. And so you may wonder, why do we spend so much time on just this seven-year period? Well, that's because the Bible gives a lot of real estate, a lot of information about this seven-year period. So to put this in perspective, this is the uh, end times chart that we've come back to again and again. You'll see the arrow is pointing to the beginning of this seven-year tribulation, the yellow arrow. Everything highlighted in yellow represents that final seven-year period. Uh, we talked in a previous session at length about Daniel's prophecy of this seven-year period. Uh, in Daniel chapter 9, he unveils a 490-year plan, and he tells us exactly when it starts, what's going to happen along the way, and when that 490 years will end. And it will end with the return of Christ. And in Daniel's prophecy, this final seven years of that 490-year plan is set apart uh, as a distinct time yet future. Uh, 400 and, the first 483 years of Daniel's prophecy have already taken place. And we know that by comparing exactly what Daniel's prophecy says with uh, the, the historical time markers. And so uh, Daniel said, for example, uh, by the time of the uh, 483rd year, uh, the Messiah would have already come the first time. He would be cut off and crucified. He, Daniel doesn't use the phrase crucified because that was a Roman culture that came later, but he talks about him being uh, killed. And then he talks about the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed. And, uh, and then he says sometime after that, a man is going to arise who is the Antichrist, who's going to uh, become worldwide known and famous, and he will take over the world. And he will do so by first signing a treaty, as described there in Daniel 9.27. And then uh, Jesus also talks about this period of time. He also uh, mentions Daniel's prophecy, quotes Daniel by name, for example. Um, it's one of the reasons we know 
that the liberal scholars who suggest Daniel didn't really write Daniel uh, are wrong because to, to claim that, first of all, is to impugn the authority of Scripture itself in Daniel, but also the words of Christ himself. It makes Jesus a liar. Um, but they like to criticize Daniel because he was so accurate. So in order to um, you know, sort of marginalize the power of the uh, fulfillment of prophecies in Scripture and the incredible accuracy of God's prophecies, they try to say, well, Daniel came along later and he wrote after the fact. But uh, you'll notice on this chart, because we're finally going to get into these tribulation judgments, at the bottom of the screen there, uh, a rectangle that uh, talks about seals, trumpets, and bowls. And the bulk of the book of Revelation is all about these judgments of God. It's, it's, as you can see in the highlighted in yellow with the green text, it's called the great day of the Lord's wrath. Uh, it's called, the, in other places, the overflowing scourge. Um, obviously, it's called the tribulation and Daniel's 70th week as we talk about, remember, a week in Hebrew. The Hebrew word is Shabuah. It means a seven-year period doesn't mean that tech, you know, in a technical sense, it, it means uh, uh, sevens, but context means it was uh, seven years. We see that pretty clearly throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and then also called the time of Jacob's trouble by the prophet Jeremiah. Jacob, of course, is Israel. So after the church is raptured, uh, which again, there's no promise that the church isn't going to have to face unspeakable persecution. Indeed, we already have. The church globally has faced unprecedented persecution over the last 2,000 years. Many of the early church apostles were martyred, and many people for the last many centuries have faced similar fates. So we're not suggesting that the rapture teaches somehow we're going to be rescued before we have to suffer, before it gets bad, but we are teaching, based on the authority of Scripture, that the church will be rescued before the start of this final climactic day of God's judgment on the earth, day of God's wrath, and uh, the, this uh, period of seven years. So after the rapture, the, the Antichrist will rise to fame in some way or form or fashion. <clears throat> you notice that little preparation period there after the rapture. Uh, we don't really know how long it'll be between the rapture and the start uh, of the tribulation. Uh, could be months, it could be years. There has to be <clears throat> some length of time in there. But once it starts, then God's prophetic clock starts ticking on that final seven-year period. And the book of Revelation deals almost exclusively with this seven-year period. There, In chapters 20 to 22, you do see uh, references to the return of Christ, the kingdom, the eternal state. But chapters really 4 uh, to 18, if we put up our chart of Revelation here, uh, are all about this tribulation period. Now last week, you'll notice chapters 4 and 5 are over here on the left. We spent the entire uh, time talking about the purpose of chapters 4 and 5 as the lead up to the unsealing of God's judgments on the earth. It's called a theodicy or a justification for wrath. And I got some good feedback from uh, people both uh, here and online, uh, how much uh, it really helped to put in perspective what was about to come. And a lot of people skip over chapters 4 and 5. Uh, it seems like a lot of sort of doxologies and just praising God, but, but why? why? Why why is that going on? Why does God give John that picture in heaven? It's because they asked, who is worthy to open the seals? What gives God the right to do what He's about to do? And the answer is because the Lamb of God was slain. He shed His blood. And so this is this final seven-year period. There's a lot going on in there. We talked about many of the things that will take place in this seven-year period back when we looked at the Olivet Discourse, that teaching of Jesus about this seven-year period. But now we want to look specifically at the judgments. And so... Uh, what I'm trying to communicate through this chart at the bottom is that it, it, the first uh, judgments of God are unveiled in the form of a scroll um, that is um, that has seven judgments. So Jesus Christ opens the seal, 
and then the first seal is a judgment, the second, and so on and so forth. But then when you get to the seventh uh, seal, it contains seven more judgments. It's not a single judgment. It's an introduction to, okay, now you've had these six judgments, these six seals, now there are seven more. And each of these is going to be announced with a trumpet. And so we'll get into that hopefully next time. Um, but then similar to the seals, you know, you've got six judgments announced with trumpets, then the seventh trumpet sounds, and it announces seven more judgments. And those judgments are in the form of bowls of wrath bubbling over. And, uh, and those judgments, even though it was difficult to really portray it in this chart because of space limitations, those bowl judgments, and if you're an old King James person, it was called vial judgment, like a vial, um, they all take place probably within the last 24 hours of the seven-year tribulation. So I'm actually speaking on uh, Revelation 14 to 16 next week at the Duluth Bible Conference. Uh, their conference theme is Racing Through Revelation, and each of the keynotes was given a assigned passage, and mine is 14 to 16, so that's the bold judgments, chapter 16. So I've really been studying that a lot in preparation for uh, that message this coming Friday, um, which, by the way, that conference will be live-streamed, and so I'll send out an email later in the week with the link. It won't be live-streamed at the Not By Works or Plum Creek websites because they're doing it in-house. I'm not controlling it. Um, but I'll send you the link to their place where they live-stream it if you're interested in watching. A lot of great speakers, a lot of great information. If you ever wanted a high-level, you know, look at Revelation over a period of three days, that, that's the way to do it. Uh, so, so those bold judgments, even though it makes it look like they cover, you know, if it was to scale, you know, maybe a year and a half there at the end of the tribulation, they're really right at the very end. It's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more severe and more severe. And finally, it leads up to the Battle of Armageddon. In fact, those bold judgments, many of them are preparation for Armageddon, uh, and then you have the final battle before Christ comes back. So that's kind of the context of what we're going to be uh, talking about, and I want to, as promised, talk uh, this morning about uh, the seal judgments. Most of them are in chapter 6, and then you get to that seventh seal, and it's really an introduction to the seven trumpet judgments uh, in chapter 8. Uh, so... Again, scholars uh, differ in terms of precisely where they believe the sealed trumpets are. We can say with 100% certainty that they begin at the beginning of the tribulation because the first sealed judgment, as we're going to see in a second, is the unveiling of the Antichrist himself. So, but after that, you, know, you see different viewpoints even among like-minded scholars I think, and I can't remember for sure, but I think J. Dwight Pentecost puts the first seal in the first half of the tribulation and then the second seal all the way through the trumpets and bowls in the second half. Um, I, I tend to see the seals as all taking place in the first half and then the trumpets in the second half leading up to the bowls at the very end. Um, but in any event, uh, we know they all comprise the outpouring of God's wrath uh, throughout the seven-year period. Uh, then you'll notice uh, you've got some supplemental information. Sometimes uh, commentators will call that uh, those interludes uh, because within the flow of thought of Revelation, they're giving supplemental uh, information uh, that is not necessarily sequential, but just sort of stepping back and either giving a glimpse of what's going on in heaven as this is happening or more details about what's going on uh, on earth. For example, chapter 7 of Revelation, which comes after the sealed judgment, is actually a, a discussion of the 144,000 Jewish missionaries. They're evangelists who are, who are marked out to go throughout the earth uh, and preach the gospel. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, that during this time the gospel of the kingdom would be preached to the uttermost parts of the earth, and then the end will come. And so that happens right from the beginning. I believe shortly after the start of the tribulation, these 144,000 are uh, sealed. And uh, 
they obviously they come to faith the same way every human being does. They believe the gospel. Uh, we the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how they hear the gospel, but uh, after the rapture, of course, there will be. If you go back, let's see. Let's go to this one. Uh, after the rapture, there will be no believers on earth. None. All believers are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But that doesn't mean there won't be a vast gospel presence on the earth. Obviously, right? There's books. There's tracts. There's you know Bibles. <laughs> uh, there there are you know, audio tapes and or I mean recordings and videos and and so forth. So. Um, you know, there, there are going to be no shortage of uh, opportunities for people to get saved, but perhaps those 144,000 uh, are saved because they uh, stumble upon something. Uh, I have a, an idea in my mind that, um, sorry, I'm going to have to fix this. It's got, uh, my presentation keeps having a mind of its own here, so give me just a second. This is very professional, but that's okay. Uh, you guys are gracious, I know. Um, let's see here. Uh, so um, my picture is um, of this is that I believe after the rapture, uh, God supernaturally gathers together these 144,000 witnesses, 12,000 from each of 12 tribes of Israel, and I believe presents the gospel. It could be in the form of uh, just, you know, uh, some miraculous presentation, but somehow I believe they all come to faith together, individually, at, but at the same time, and then God seals them so that they're protected from all of the harm that, that Satan and the Antichrist are going to be unleashing during that time. So their ministry, let's go back to the Revelation chart, their ministry takes place during the whole seven years. That's why I tried to communicate that with this being covering the full seven years. Um, but, uh, but he sort of inserts it between the sixth seal and the seventh seal judgment as an interlude or a supplemental information. Now, What's interesting about the 144,000 is they come up again in Revelation chapter 14, which is one of my um, passages for this conference next week, chapters 14 to 16. And so I really was fascinated to kind of look at everything in context, read the book of Revelation again and again, and kind of go back between 7 and 14. And what's interesting is in chapter 14, the first five verse, verses are bringing up the 144,000 missionaries. And it's a time of commendation. You sort of get this picture that they're being commended because, you know, these are the ones who did this and did this and did this, he says, I think it's in verse 5. And so it's a, it's a time of commendation. And then right after that in verse 6, you have this somewhat enigmatic reference to an angel who is going forth and preaching the gospel to every people, nation, tribe, tongue, and language. Well, that same phrase, nation, tribe, tongue, and language, is used in chapter 7 of the 144,000. So we know in Revelation 14 at least what one of the messages of that angel is, because it says in the very next verse, this angel is preaching the everlasting gospel and saying, Fear God, for the time of his judgment has come. But it's my speculation, and it's just speculation, based on the similar language from 7 to 14 and the fact that both passages bring into the discussion the 144,000 Jewish missionaries, that what's happening is in Revelation 14 to 16, again, it's the lead up to those bold judgments and that final moment. So we're in the waning hours of this seven-year period, the final moments. I believe the 144,000 by that time have been preaching the gospel steadfastly for seven years. Revelation 7 tells us there's a great harvest of souls from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. Then chapter 14, they are commended for their work. And then in the very next verse, he says, now this angel is going to uh, go throughout the earth and preach the everlasting gospel is the way it's described to every nation, tribe, tongue, and language too. So it's my suggestion that in this final 11th hour, God uses supernatural means, namely an angel, uh, 
to, to, to hit all the spots on earth that the 144,000 hadn't gotten to yet. Uh, remember, Jesus said the gospel will be preached to the uttermost part of the earth, and then the end will come. Then he will return. And so that means every people group on earth will have heard the gospel. So I believe um, that that angel and the reference to the everlasting gospel, there is a reference to the message that must be believed to be saved, the, the, the grace message that is the gospel in the New Testament. Uh, again, the Bible doesn't specifically say that that's the, what he's preaching, but I think it's a pretty strong a theological conclusion. And I was talking to a friend of mine about this because I wanted to see what he thought. And uh, he, he agreed that it's, you know, an inference. It's not something the text exactly says that they were telling everyone that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. And, and by the way, the word gospel doesn't in and of itself mean that. Gospel just means good news, and it can mean good news in a variety of contexts. So a lot of people think that the, that the angel there at the end is preaching just the good news that judgment is finally coming, not necessarily telling people how to be saved. But again, I think based on that it's, it's in the same context as 144,000, which we're clearly preaching to people how to be saved, uh, how to have faith, I think uh, that's a part of it. But then in the context of talking to my friend about it, uh, he was saying, well, I don't know, you know, has there ever been an angel that has preached the gospel uh, or proclaimed the gospel? And I couldn't really think off the top of my head on, my, on the phone, but, I, but in my mind, thinking theologically, I basically said, well, I don't know, but it doesn't really matter. It's irrelevant because there are a lot of firsts in the Bible, and there are particularly a lot of firsts in the book of Revelation. So it's not like this couldn't be the first time at the last minute before the age, end of the age when he uses an angel to get the message out. Uh, but then uh, my friend texted me back, and we were both, I was a little embarrassed, I probably guess he was too, that we forgot the most obvious example of an angel proclaiming good news to the world. Can you think of what I'm talking about? Well, well, Bethlehem, right? If you go to Luke 2.10, you know, the, the, the Greek verb there is, Euangelizo, sharing the gospel, behold, I bring you good tidings. And the phrase, bring you good tidings, or bring good tidings, is a verb to evangelize. So, obviously, there is a precedent. And, I, and then, the theologian in me kind of took it a step further and thought, well, how cool is that, that at the first advent of Christ, God used an angel to announce the gospel? And just moments before the second advent, He appears to be using an angel to pro proclaim the gospel. And so... That's kind of where the 144,000 fit in. But let's go ahead and uh, quickly uh, walk through these judgments in our remaining time. So you've heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that phrase. Well, the word apocalypse in English is a cognate of the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revelation. So the title of the last book of the Bible is the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the first four seals, when they're opened by, of course, the Lamb of God, they each contain a whore, a rider on a horse, announcing a judgment. And each one's a different color. And these first four seals are what are commonly referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so, of course, a lot of you know non-biblical, uh, you know, so-called experts in in end times stuff you know, make a big deal about the four horsemen of the apocalypse as if it's the sum total of the last book of the Bible. Of course, they're just pulling out a few verses from one part of one section of Revelation. Um, uh, and, and there's much more to the tribulation period than just these four judgments. But it is interesting. So the first judgment, or the first seal rather, is a white horse. And listen to what we read. I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked. And behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, uh, I think I've pointed this out before, somewhere probably multiple times along the way, but it is very noteworthy that at the beginning of the tribulation and at the end of the tribulation, we have a rider on a white horse. And the first one here is the Antichrist, who is an imposter, who's going out to conquer the world, like he's been trying to do for 6,000 years since he got banished from heaven. But you get to the second coming, 
in, at the end of the seven years, and we see heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him is called Faithful and True. Notice the capitalization there. Who, who are we talking about? Christ. So the first one was the Antichrist, an imposter. The second time we see a rider on the white horse, he'll be faithful and true. He'll be the real deal, the genuine article. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. We don't see the Antichrist doing what he's doing in righteousness. He's doing it for selfish motives and selfish gain and to bring himself power and glory and make himself king of the world. Uh, so that's the introduction there, which is why the seal judgments uh, have to begin at the beginning. Um, and, uh, and, and the wrath of God is already being poured out, as we shall see at the end of chapter 6. Then the red horse, this Antichrist, is granted authority to take peace from the earth. If you look at verses 3 and 4, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see, another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. So uh, the picture that is beginning to be painted here is that during the tribulation period, it will be a time of unprecedented chaos. Uh, as Jesus uh, says elsewhere, will be brother against brother. There'll be people killing one another. After the rapture happens, it, you know, the, it'll be an end of the world as we know it scenario. We might have an end of the world as we know it scenario even before the rapture, but certainly at that point, it'll be yet another absolute paradigm shift. Um, we can only speculate as to what uh, the deceptive Luciferians who are left behind will say happened at the rapture, whether they'll claim it was an alien abduction or, you know, who knows. Uh, but clearly there's going to be unprecedented evil on the earth. Paul tells us the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit in and through the church will be removed, obviously, if the church isn't here. And so you just have to kind of imagine what life will be like. And I think throughout human history we can point to certain uh, sort of prefigurements or foreshadowings of this in a microscopic, uh, microcosmic, I should say, environment. Like if you think of, uh, uh, you know, riots and unrest in places like Seattle or Portland or Los Angeles or Chicago, where there are portions of those cities where the police won't even go. I mean, it's just complete anarchy and mayhem. And I think that's what we're going to see happening globally. And this is what he's talking about, about taking peace from the earth. Then the black horse brings famine. The black horse, the third seal judgment. When he had opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm uh, the oil and the wine. So the idea here is the price of wheat which is sort of people food, if you will, and barley, which was common for cattle and, and uh, you know, your uh, livestock, uh, will be very high. I mean, a quart of wheat would provide one meal, basically, for a family. But it's saying it's going to cost a whole day's wages. In John's day in the first century, a denarius would purchase 12 to 15 times as much food. So it's indicating it's going to be an incredible spike in food prices. The poor will have little money left after they just barely get enough to feed themselves for oil and fuel and other basic staples. Um, when it says there at the end, the last phrase, do not harm, the idea there in Greek is do not tamper with, which is going to be an indication of the strict price controls that the Antichrist and his uh, co-conspirators have over you know, regulating the food. So for those believers who got saved after the rapture, and not just believers, but all people, whether they've come to faith in Christ or not, who are alive at this time, that might be trying to hide out from you know, the Antichrist and his army of you know, TSA agents, um, that, that it's going to become increasingly difficult to skirt the regulations and maybe buy and sell off the grid. Um, you know, control measures are going to be put in place. Tracking measures are going to be put in place is the idea. So that's one of the reasons why I think it's wise, especially as we see things 
rapidly spiraling out of control with um, you know the Klaus Schwab and the Great Satanic Reset and the UN Agenda 2030 and a lot of things that are just happening very very rapidly uh, that people have uh, food to be prepared for. And then, of course, the fourth horseman of the apocalypse, the fourth horse, is the pale horse. Pale green is the idea here, which brings a death of one quarter of the world's population. So when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed him. So death and Hades here are personified, a common figure of speech. We're going to talk about personification and anthropomorphisms and zoomorphisms and those types of figures of speech uh, that are common in every language, but we see them throughout Scripture when we get to that in our study on how to read and understand the Bible. Um, but uh, power was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, hunger, death, and by the beasts uh, of the earth. So death here personified, that's why they're capitalized, uh, is claiming the material part of man, our bodies, and then Hades is claiming the immaterial part, the soul. And uh, so we know, let me just put this chart up and then I'll come back to the verse, that according to Scripture, the physical bodies of every human being will be resurrected at some point. Uh, that's a fact. Uh, all unbelievers who die in unbelief, and remember what Jesus said in John 8, 24, if you do not believe in me, you'll die in your sins. So he's made it possible for any human being on earth to, to receive the gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. He's paid the debt, he's offered the gift, but he's not going to force anybody to take it. Uh, it's a freely, it's the gift that's freely offered and must be freely received. And so anybody who rejects the free gift of salvation by not placing their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for their sins and rose again, will then face eternal punishment. And all of those, their physical bodies will be resurrected at the end of the millennium, just before time shall be no more, when they're cast into the lake of fire, along with Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet from the final seven-year period. But for believers throughout the ages, we receive our glorified bodies, our resurrected body, where this physical body, which at some point, if the Lord doesn't come back, everyone in this room, our physical bodies will go the way of all flesh. We'll either be buried in a grave or cremated or, God forbid, if some tragedy happens and you drown or you're burned up in a crash, you know, who knows. But the physical atoms that constitute our physical body from conception on, never cease to exist, and they will be reconstituted from wherever they are at, at these appointed times, according to Scripture, to receive a glorified, timeless, eternal body that's perfect. And Paul said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. So ultimately in the kingdom, in the final, in the eternal state of the kingdom, we have to have our glorified bodies. So we know that all the Old Testament saints who are with the Lord now, just their physical bodies haven't been reconstituted yet, they will be re resurrected at the second coming, according to Daniel 12 and Isaiah 26. Uh, for us, believers of the present church age, this church age which is a mystery and it's a special blessing, we have a unique time when we get our bodies, and that's at the rapture. Remember, uh, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive and remain, in other words, we're still on the earth, we, have, we never died. If the rapture were to happen in our day, that would be us. Then we too will be changed. It's called translated instead of resurrected because we never experienced physical death. But in any event, the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul says um, we shall all be changed for this mortal must put on immortality, this, corruption must put on inc this corruptible must put on incorruption, and so forth. Um, and then tribulation believers, those who come to faith after the rapture, perhaps they are part of that people from every, well, they are part of people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, but perhaps they were the direct converts of the message of the 144,000. They, if they die during the tribulation, and many of them will because of the persecution of the Antichrist, they will receive their uh, bodies at the same time that Old Testament saints do at the time of Christ's second coming. And then the millennial believers, I uh, believe, will be, uh, translated either at the end of the millennium or perhaps when they come to faith, talking about those who are born during the millennium. And because at the start of the millennium, every believer is saved. Remember, Christ comes back, separates the sheep from the goats. Only the sheep get in. 
Um, but they will still have children, and so over the thousand years, that's a long time, a lot of people will be born, and every human being born is born dead in their trespasses and sins and must, by faith, be justified. And so the Bible is silent as to precisely when that group will get their glorified bodies. I've uh, written a paper about this in which I speculate, make a few theological inferences that I wouldn't, can't prove exegetically, you know, with chapter and verse, but I think are pretty strong evidence. Uh, but one of the speculations is that they will either get, the minute they get saved, they get glorified, or at the end of the millennium, just before time shall be no more. So if we go back to uh, the uh, fourth seal here, notice he says a fourth of the earth is killed. That's the total number that will die as a result of the catastrophes up to that point. War and famine and disease. It's interesting that he even talks about attacks by wild animals. Um, you know, it's going to be chaotic. The Old Testament talks about this at chaotic uh, times. I, I feel a cat joke coming on, but I'm going to resist the urge. Uh, he already said one? Okay. Good. Thank you. Thank you. That's what deacons are for. You know, they step up. They tell the jokes that are going to make people mad at them, and they take the flack. That's good. So, uh, but anyway, Jeremiah talks about these types of things, uh, Ezekiel. So as uh, obscure as it might sound uh, in terms of a detail, again, put yourself in the picture as best we can of what it might be like at that time. I mean, what about all the animals, domesticated animals, that are left behind at the rapture, Right? I mean, that in and of itself, just in terms of sheer numbers, is going to create some problems. And what are those animals going to do that are used to being, you know, groomed and pet and have kingdoms in their little, you know, houses and their play areas and, you know, you feed them three times a day and, you know, all, all of a sudden they're left to fend for themselves. So it's going to be crazy. It's not to mention the wild animals, which is the, the nuance of beasts here, is, is wild, wild animals. Um, you know, as a side note... I, I got uh, one of the emails I got this week was from someone up in Canada uh, who I've corresponded with a few times over the course of this What in the World is Going On series. And they were telling me some firsthand accounts of some uh, adverse effects of vaccines up there. And they also brought up, they live very remote, and they also brought up that there have been a, a, a statistically very significant spike in the number of wild animal attacks on the vaccinated because of the shedding. Have you ever thought about that? You know, animals can smell blood. And so uh, look that up. I'm not, I'm not here to say that's automatically true, but certainly true that animals smell blood. <laughs> and so could there be a correlation? We don't know. But let's do some math <clears throat> here, numbering the dead, I call this. Let's assume there are 7.5 billion people on Earth I think that's about right. Maybe it's 7.8, but it was easier to do the math when 7.5. Now, I always like to ask this question because it's, uh, I don't know, it's just interesting to me what people's perspective is or your theory is. But how, if the rapture were to happen today, and let's use the 7.5 billion number, how many people do you speculate will be raptured? Which is to say, how many people are believers today on the earth? Just holler it out. No, how, how many? Five uh, percent. Um, 5%, 5 would be what? And then you said 1.5 billion. Ke Kelly's making me do the work. 0. 0.05 times 7.5 would be 0. 0.375 billion. So now what is that? I don't know. Let me do 7, 5, 5 0, 0, 0, 0, 0 times, you said 0.05? Yep. 375,000? No. Yeah. Million. Well, if I do, I do seven, oh yeah, I left out three zeros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my calculate, well, maybe if I turn it like that. You will not be in charge of 750 million. <laughs> I was, I was going to ask Gary to do it, but you know, 0.05. Okay, 30 seven million, I think, is what it comes to, something like that. Anyway, you said 1.5 billion. Who else? What do you think? 250 million. 250 million. So you're going low. Okay. 
Well, I'm kind of embarrassed by the number I picked based on <laughs> your feedback. I'm, I've always been the eternal optimist. But let's say there's 2 billion raptured Christians. What's that, 4%, something like that? Uh, 25 roughly, percent, 26%. So thinking of in terms of percentage, is it possible that there's 26% of believers? Probably that's high, actually. So let me go to plan B. Let's go to, let's, let's say 1 billion. I was hedging my bets. So let's say 1 billion. That may still be high, but let's, for the sake of argument, let's say that 1 billion Christians are raptured. That leaves 6.5 billion people left behind. All of them unbelievers at the start of the tribulation. And this uh, seal judgment tells us that a quarter of them are going to die. So that will leave 4.9 billion. So really, by the time you get a little ways into that seven-year tribulation, by the time you get to the fourth judgment of God, it's the, the population on earth has roughly been cut in half. You know, Especially if I'm off a little bit on how many believers there are. Um, obviously, we don't know. We, I think there are going to be people that are believers that we see in heaven after the rapture that we didn't expect. And I think there are going to be plenty of people that we thought we would see that we don't. I think there's definitely a lot of false professors out there who think they've been saved, um, but they really have never trusted in Christ alone. Um, but um, I think there's also going to be people who may not be living like believers, but somewhere in their journey they were introduced to the gospel. The Spirit of God convicted them of their need for a Savior, and they placed their faith in simple childlike manner in the gospel. So we just don't know. But anyway, the illustration is simply to show you the devastation in number of lives that will come after that judgment. And then we've got the fifth sealed judgment, which is the prayers for revenge by early tribulation martyrs. Anytime people tell you that prayer doesn't matter, it matters. Because here, the judgment is in response to these people who've already been martyred by this point, who are crying out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the scene shifts to heaven. And these people that got saved after the rapture and were immediately beheaded or martyred or whatever way are now crying out in this climactic moment because the, the evil, the injustice, the persecution will reach unprecedented heights. And then the sixth judgment is an earthquake uh, and he says I looked uh, when he opened the sixth seal and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood by the way notice the figures of speech again here a simile using as and like as sackcloth like blood the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs so John's just trying to describe using figures of speech and comparisons here what he's seeing uh, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up again another word picture and every mountain and island was moved out of its place and the kings of the earth the great men the rich men the commanders the mighty men every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to stand? So this sixth seal judgment, again, is really the last judgment because the seventh one opens up a whole new set of judgments. But it's these six seal judgments that we talked about back during the Olivet Discourse correlate perfectly with what Christ says, which is one of the reasons we know not besides the, the immediate context, that Jesus is speaking here about that future seven-year period. This is, Jesus isn't talking about the church age in the Olivet Discourse. The church didn't even exist yet. It hadn't even been uh, instituted or uh, talked about. It was still a future thing that would happen, you know, uh, 10 days after his ascension, 50 days after his uh, resurrection. And so, just as Jesus warned of false Christ, the first seal is the Antichrist. Just as Jesus warned of war, we read of peace taken from the earth and people killing one another in war. Just as Jesus warned of famine, we notice the scarcity of food in the third seal judgment. Just as Jesus spoke of death, the fourth seal judgment, the pale rider, that's a pale green, the color of a corpse is why that horse is pale green, 
uh, brings quarter of population of, to death. The fifth seal is Jesus speaks of martyrdom. What do we? Or the Jesus speaks of martyrdom. What's the fifth seal? The martyrs crying out for justice. And then Jesus speaks of cosmic signs, lightning flashing from the east and the west, and so forth. And the sixth seal speaks of these cosmic uh, disturbances. And so uh, the seventh uh, judgment then, or the seventh seal, reveals seven more judgments called trumpets. And let's just look at this, and then we'll close, and we'll come back to this next time when we get into the trumpet judgments. But when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Okay, so you're... You're seeing this is, this is a momentous moment in all of human history leading up to the culmination of God's plan of the ages as outlined in Scripture. And I saw the seven angels who stood before God and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And then a sneak peek we're going to get. We'll deal with each one of these one at a time. But you can see the progressive nature of these judgments and the devastation that it is upon the earth. And you get to the last three trumpet judgments, and they're so bad that the Bible calls them woes. If the first woe, the second woe, the third woe, which are the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet judgments. But uh, I've spent up our time, but if there is one, maybe one or two quick questions, we'll cheat a little bit and give you less coffee time. Anybody have a question? Yeah. So is chapter 7 an interlude? Yes. Okay. Exactly. It's, it's, uh, let's go back to that revelation outline. So it's, it, see, over here, I call it supplemental information. Uh, interludes, I don't know, it just sounds like I'm at a funeral or something. I don't know. But uh, anyway, that's a lot of people call them interludes. That's probably more common. But so all of this stuff in black kind of is information about stuff that will take place during the uh, tribulation, but we're not exactly sure. I mean, Revelation 10 is, is, and the witnesses are, and what happens to them with the death and resurrection are at the midpoint. But um, I think the witnesses are serving throughout the whole seven years. I'm not, I can't prove that, but that's my best guess. They might be uh, just in the second half after they're, they're brought back from the dead. Yeah. Um, I know you're going to be doing a study on the millennium, so I'm sure you're going to get into it. But one of the questions that always plays me, when we talk about in the millennium, you know, that people will have to accept Christ. I always think about how, well, my question is, will Christ be as he was on earth? Or like, you think about the transfiguration and, and when he was so glorious. So you think about Isaiah falling on his face because he couldn't even look. So how is it possible that people will see Jesus because he will be ruling so the question is uh, about how Christ will appear, what his physical appearance will be during the millennium when he's reigning on earth. And given the fact that he is God, he's in his resurrected body physically, and we have other examples of, you know, like the Mount, Mount of Transfiguration or other glimpses where uh, men of God have seen God and just been falling flat on their faces. How would it, the question is how would it be possible that people wouldn't worship him? Well, I think most will. I think what we're going to see during the millennium uh, is that there will be, uh, whereas today the vast minority of people are coming to faith, I think more it'll be more likely for people to come to faith then because instead of pointing to a historical figure, uh, you know, and saying that guy died for your sins, you can point to him on the, you know. TV when he gives the State of the World address every January or whatever. And you can say, that guy, he's the one you need to trust in. He died. He defeated the Antichrist. He brought in the real new world order. And he's about to bring in the real ultimate new heavens and new earth, you know. So I think, uh, <clears throat> but yet, the whole purpose of the millennium is to show that the heart of man is desperately wicked. And even in, under the most ideal conditions, when sin is largely held in check, there will still be sin in the millennium by unbelievers, I take it. 
Um, but uh, it'll be judged appropriately. There will be no inequities, no, un, no unnatural uh, deaths or uh, uh, accidental deaths and those types of things. And, but even in that case, people will still reject Christ. But as far as what he will look like, we know from the post-resurrection appearances that obviously he's recognizable, as we all will be. Like, you'll know me as JB and I'll know you when we're in heaven. Thankfully, I won't look like this because I'll have my glorified body, but I'll still be who I am. See, humanity is, is, is a, a unique, uh, you know, uh, person. It's, it's uh, from the moment of conception, we are, you know, a human. And what we look like, I mean, I could cut off my arm or bleach my hair. I could do anything and it's still me. So, so the fact that we go from, you know, the mortal body into our eternal bodies doesn't change who we are. And Jesus, remember, is fully man. He's 100% human because every high priest had to be chosen among men. And uh, that's the hypostatic union. So he, too, will still be clearly recognizable. Uh, beyond that, it's just somewhat speculative. Um, but I think you bring up a good point. Yeah. Um, what do you make of the third horseman, the statement of, about uh, leave the wine and the oil, but don't mess with the... Yeah, so... What I said, uh, I did mention that, but I know I was talking fast, that do not harm there, do not harm the oil and the wine is a reference to do not tamper with. So it's a, it's a reference to the strict control prices that will be in place, and uh, people will be forced to buy and sell at the regulated rates and methods, and you can't, you know, notice he has a scale in his hand, that's part of it, uh, you won't be able to cheat the system without having great consequence. So um, that that's the, kind of the idea there. Do not tamper with the oil and the wine. Don't try to, you know, dilute it or, you know. I, that, I, I, kind of, I was wondering if it was about do not uh, increase the prices on no. some no, no, because they're already talking about the increased prices. Remember, a, a quart of wheat is about 12 to 15 times the normal price, uh, you know, at a denarius. So. All right, well, we better shut her down. We want to give you time to stretch your legs. So we'll come back together at 10 o'clock. Maybe we'll give you an extra couple of minutes, but we'll ring the bell or sing the song or I'll get your attention when it's time. But anyway, for those of you live streaming, uh, we're going to take a break. We'll come back on at about 10:25, 10:30, give or take five minutes.